you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Gabby Dunn here Being bad with money so you don't have to Oh man, love that theme song You guys love it? I know, because you tell me you love it. Welcome to episode two of season two of Bad With Money. In case you guys didn't pick up on this from last week's premiere, this season might be a little depressing. I know many of us are already depressed by our financial situation, so I'm sorry about that. But also, something I'm realizing more and more is that a lot of things that keep us up at night aren't really our fault. They're the product of a completely broken system that relies on bullshit hero narratives of personal responsibility that trick us into feeling like anyone can overcome structural obstacles if they just try hard enough. Which is why I predict you'll be hearing a lot more of the Carrie Wade queer feminist anti-capitalist alarm this season. Okay, so what do I mean by that? And how does it apply to medical bills, the topic of today's show? Today, we're going to talk to four different guests, each of whom is going to help us understand a different piece of the healthcare crisis we're facing, which, not to bury the lead, isn't like magically fixed just because Trump care self-destructed. But wasn't it glorious? It was so great. I really enjoyed the tweets between Papa Roach and Paul Ryan. Just go check them out. We still have a lot of fucking work to do, though. And we're going to hear the stories of comedian H. Allen Scott, who experienced the viciousness of a free market healthcare system firsthand, as in it almost killed him. We'll also hear from YouTuber Akila Hughes, who was forced to turn to a crowdfunding website to afford the surgery that saved her life. And we'll talk to writer Cleo Chang about the twisted philosophy that underpins so much of our thinking about healthcare as a concept. But first, many of you are familiar with comedian Brittany Ashley. She's a buddy of mine who was a guest on Bad With Money last season in our episode about BuzzFeed being evil. And when she heard I was doing an episode about medical bills, she said, you've got to talk to my dad. Uh, Yes, my name is Eric Ashley. I'm a 55-year-old uh, who lives in the suburb of Chicago. I wanted to kick off this episode by sharing Eric's story because it sets up the rest of the issues we're going to get into this week perfectly, which is to say, it's a goddamn tragedy. Brittany's mother, when Brittany was little, uh, came down with cancer. And luckily for me at the time, um, I had a, a decent insurance program. And um, her bills at the time in the early 90s uh, topped over a million dollars. There was six surgeries and long hospital stays and then hospice care and whatnot that went over the period of almost three years uh, as far as bills being accumulated. You know, you add in um, the fact that my wife's condition was considered terminal um, at the diagnosis. Um, She was basically given nine months. Um, so the fi- a lot of the financial uh, burden that come was uh, her trying to live a lifetime in nine months with, uh, you know, two young children at home. You know, there was a lot of uh, living beyond our means to, you know, accommodate some dreams and things that she wanted to do before, you know, the inevitable. And, uh, you know, that came at a financial cost, but, um, you know, those costs were something that, you know, to do over again, I would have probably done it the same way. How old were you and, and your wife when she was diagnosed? 
Uh, she was 29 and I was 31. You know, a 29-year-old woman who doesn't drink or smoke or do drugs gets a stomach condition and then, you know, things didn't seem to be um, getting better and then a period of weight loss started to occur and um, after myself not being satisfied with the care she was being given at the time and what they thought she had, I told her just, you know, go to the emergency room and don't um, I'll watch the kids and don't come home until they know what's wrong. And then uh, basically then they found uh, pancreatic cancer in her. So, um, yeah, it was basically uh, right out of nowhere. And, you know, at the time we were just getting a home and uh, building a family and whatnot. And part of the burden was that we didn't have life insurance at the time because, you know, a 28-year-old woman in good health, you don't think you need to start spending money on life insurance uh, at that time, you know, especially with bills and everything. So, you know, that just added to the uh, financial stress. This is what's so important to me as I think talking about this stuff and and how people don't realize, because I'm sure you're not thinking about anything that could happen that could end your life when you're not even in your 30s yet. Exactly. How did you have health insurance? You had health insurance through your job? Uh, Yes, I uh, was part of a uh, trade union through the painters union. And um, luckily at the time, you know, the union had a decent insurance program that I was part of. But I had um, left the painters union and switched over to being a carpenter. When I switched jobs and then became eligible, uh, that was at the time that she ended up going to the hospital. And there was some concern on my side about whether or not I had enough hours for eligibility to be covered for that period that she was in the hospital uh, initially for her surgery and the follow-up care after the surgery. And it turned out I had had 24 hours enough to cover the eligibility period. So if I had missed like three or four days of work, I probably I wouldn't have been covered. So you just made, you just barely made the cutoff? If I hadn't had those three days for that period, I would have had a lot more of out-of-pocket expenses. The out-of-pocket expenses, you know, I could have tried to just ignore them, but I ended up paying them all off over the period of about five years. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, $20 a month here, $20 a month there, and... You know, this was back when landlines were really the thing, and I would get phone calls like every day, all day, from you know the X-ray technicians looking for their money, the this person, this lab, that lab looking. You know, it was a bad scene, but it, you know, I, I wanted to do the right thing and just pay it off. Some people would be very shitty, you know, calling about the you know, the $400 that I owed them, you know, and here I'm, you know, I'm trying to explain to them, my wife just passed away, left me with my uh, six and 10 year old daughters to care for. I have a full-time job. I'm paying for a nanny to watch my children while I'm at work. And he's calling me looking for more money. I paid off what I could. And then uh, when I got enough equity in my home, I took a second mortgage to roll in that debt to my uh, mortgage payment in the form of a second mortgage. 
it was the thing you had to do. You take pride in yourself and you do the right thing and you pay your bills. What do you wish you had known? Is there something that you wish you had known that, I mean, you were so young when this happened. Like, is, some, is there something you wish you had known or is there something that, like, if people out there are dealing with a similar thing that you... Um, here's what here, here's my advice to anyone under 30 years old get life insurance even if it's enough to pay for a funeral because funerals are pretty expensive um you don't realize what's all involved in that until you're in it and get some kind of health care um even if you know i mean there's talk of these thirteen thousand dollar deductible insurance plans and this and that but you know, something's better than nothing. I, I can't imagine what I'd have happened to me if I hadn't had health insurance through my company. Even if I hadn't, I, I mean, the sad thing is, if I hadn't had it through my company, I don't know if I'd have paid for it. My grandmother got sick when I was young, and uh, she died fairly young, too. And it's like, I would be like, well, just fix her. Like, what is, like, just fix her, and, and I don't care what it costs. Yeah, right. Like, what? Exactly. What's the cost of a human of human life? You know. Yeah, you can't. That, you know, if, you're, if that's what you're thinking about at that time, then there's something wrong with you as a person. <laughs> Stay tuned, guys. After the break, we'll talk to H. Allen Scott about having to make the choice to go into a lifetime of debt or to stay alive. H. Allen Scott is, as you're about to hear, an incredibly charming person who I'm very happy to be able to call my friend. But I'm only able to do that because he survived cancer, throwing himself under a mountain of debt in the process. So I, in 2012, uh, was in Los Angeles for work, trying to make it big. And then I got, um, I had a pain in my testicles, and it turned out to be the cancer. You didn't think it was cancer you went to like an std clinic yeah no so at first okay when i had the pain i went to because i didn't have a doctor in los angeles because i was living in new york at the time and i went to my friend's doctor and he apparently is like the doctor to all the homosexuals in los angeles like i even ran into a friend in the lobby i've had that but just for like the therapist for all lesbians in la oh so yeah there's like one person that caters to all these niche groups anyway so this man uh saw me and i think he really sort of subscribed certain norms of his own stereotypes onto me. Yeah. And he just assumed it was an STD. He just, yeah. He just, he just very flippantly was like, oh, it's probably this or that STD. Well, and there's a lot to say about like different marginalized groups not receiving the correct medical care due yeah. to stereotypes. But yeah, go but on. But this coming from a gay man. Yeah. An openly gay man who markets himself as a gay doctor to gay men. Yeah. And uh, so he's telling me this and I'm telling him it's not an STD like I haven't had sex in a long time. Mm -hmm. Like, thanks for rubbing it in. It's not an STD. (laughs) And then at the end of like, I think it was like five days later, I got a call about my blood work, which is like an agonizing five days. And in a weird way, like, I felt like he was embarrassed to make this call because he was wrong. And your head was like, wait, two days ago, I didn't have cancer. Yeah. So what was your job? So I was working for, at the time, I was doing comedy and writing, and then I was also working for, um, like, an event production company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you had insurance through them? I had insurance through them. Not great insurance, because I never needed my insurance. Like Because you're thing, 30. Yeah, the only thing I ever needed my insurance for was dental work. And then, on top of that, I was, like, I was a vegetarian. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I was running fucking marathons. Like, this is not in my family. This was mm-hmm. not expected at all. Yeah. And, and then it just happens. 
everyone was like, oh, you don't have short-term disability supplemental insurance? No, I don't. I'm 30. <laughs> who, the, who has that? Ugh. Nobody has that unless you're like 40 years old and some insurance agent like throws that on as an extra right. for you because you have endless income coming at you. No, no one has that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have that, which would have been very helpful in the situation because I was a New York State resident and short-term disability in New York State comes out to like 400 a month. And yeah. who lives on 400 a month? Like people do. Some people do. And yeah, but not – I mean in New York, it's very York, difficult. Yeah, that and pays, here, it's very difficult. Exactly. Yeah. And so I couldn't work at the same time because chemo was five days a week, six hours a day often, like depending upon the cycle I was on. And it just was so evasive in my life that yeah. like – here I was getting penalized for not having more insurance, but at the same time, like I couldn't work because I needed to get better. Yeah. And so I'm like stuck in this weird middle ground of like, okay, I'm just going to start having lots of debt. Before I started chemo, um, my doctor, cause I knew I hadn't been to the dentist in like a year. Right. And I was like, oh, well I should probably, is, is that going to be a problem? And I asked my doctor and he's like, yes, go to the dentist now. So like a week before I started chemo, I went to the dentist and I had, um, I had like a couple of cavities, and, but nothing was crazy. Right. You know, it wasn't hurting me or anything. And there was one tooth that like I knew I probably needed a root canal on, but never really did anything about. And the dentist was in this situation where there was not enough time for me to have the work done that I needed because I have to heal. Like if you don't, if you, if you go into chemo and you're not healed from whatever procedures you have, yeah. it'll prolong it and you can get infections and all mm-hmm. kinds of things. And so we had to make a decision right then and there between not doing anything with these teeth and having it potentially run into a really big problem during chemo or pulling the teeth and being safe so that you can get them replaced after chemo. And I, of course, I just said, yes, pull them. Like what what else? I can't, I'm not so going to risk... Just- like, yeah, but then you're like, so now I'm going to chemo and I have no teeth. Yeah. I just decided to pull them because I'm not going to – because the thing is, is like if you get an infection during chemo, then you have to stop chemo. Yeah, and you were like, well, then I'm just holding on to these teeth and at I don't want to get more maybe... cancer because of chemo R- or yeah, because of teeth. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and teeth can be replaced. But the problem with that is, so after chemo, after – here I am toothless going through chemo, and then after chemo I go to get – my teeth replaced and none of that is covered not one bit of it and fake because teeth it's cosmetic you exactly said. yeah but it's not cosmetic it's because of the cancer exactly it's all because because of this but put, getting it replaced technically is cosmetic under their policy and so that's a large part of my debt is that is having teeth, teeth. Having to teeth. chew food yes. which you need yes to chew food and to like you know i have a great smile so that was one part of chemo. I started chemo toothless and sad. And then during chemo, I was on my like, I think third round and I was getting really sick and my white blood cell count was getting really low and they were concerned about how low it was getting. And I kept getting infections left and right, like sicknesses, blues yeah. and stuff. And uh, they were suggesting this shot. Um, it's a white blood cell booster. It's a very expensive shot. I mean, at the time that I was getting the shot, it was like 14000 Yeah. Like, it's like a lot of money for, for a shot, shot. For a mm-hmm. shot. And it's very rarely covered under insurance. And so the nurse, the nurse comes to me and says, here are your options. You can either take a break from chemo, but then it's like, that's not the point of chemo. Like, you want yeah. it done so that you don't get any growth of more tumors or anything happening. And in that time of the break, you could – the tumors could grow. Exactly. So – Take a break from chemo and risk that to get better, to get to get my white blood cell count up, or 
take this shot, which is a very expensive shot and is likely not going to be covered under your insurance, and you'll be fine. This is like a weird fucked up game show. Yeah. Where it's it like is. you're going to have a lot of debt because of this shot, but you'll live. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, choose. Yeah. And that's, and there is no choice in that moment. Of what course, did you, you do? take the shot. You took the you shot. You take the shot. I mean, because at that moment, it's, were you like, how will I pay this back? Or you were like, I no, don't care. I want to live. During chemo, I had to find a, a happy place in my head where I had to just say, I'm going in debt. Yeah. This is just happening. Like, there's, I have zero control over this. And frankly, I would rather be alive and in debt mm-hmm. than to not be in debt. And you, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, You're not going to be happy you saved money if you died. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what's the point of that? I kept thinking, like, what if I literally had nobody in my life? What if I had no family or none of this friend's support and I'd have to, I would have to have paid for rent and car insurance and car payments and all of these things during chemo? I don't know if I'd be able to. I don't yeah. know. I, I think I think I would have. Yeah, I don't think I would have been able to do it. And and yeah. then if you're a single and alone and you don't have any other sort of like supplemental income or support coming from a partner, nobody wants to live with a roommate that's going through chemo. Right. No one wants to take that person in. Right. And so what do you do? I mean, I just don't know what some people do. I really get angry when people make healthcare political. Yeah. Because, and it, now, it, fundamentally, on its surface, it is political because it has, it impacts so many different aspects of our lives. Not only is it medical, but it's also financial, but it's also cultural in some ways. Mm-hmm. People who have a disability or have some sort of like, you know, chronic medical problem often culturally are appropriated in such a way to be weaker or lesser than. Yeah. And so it, it, it does cover many different aspects of, politics and of the political scene yeah um that said it is about people's lives and livelihood and and security and that's what blows my mind about like i don't understand how like who lives and who dies is is suddenly like up for it just that's what i mean by your story being like it just sounds dystopian but like here we are yeah there's one level where it is who lives and who dies and there's another level and i and i really I really actively try to understand the opposite side of people who want a sort of commercial free market. Mm-hmm. And because that is a that is a legitimate argument to make that we have for years been doing this. But because the way the pharmaceutical companies have made drug pricing the way it is and mm-hmm. because of the medical sort of industry being the way it is, it's become this like big budget production mm-hmm. that. It, and it's gotten out of hand. And now the people who are suffering are not the wealthy and, and frankly, aren't the poor either. It's the people in the middle. It's mm-hmm. the people who are just barely getting by or who are sort of middle class and who have kids to support. I mean, it's that group of people who are really, really struggling because you have these – and even under Obamacare. And like Obamacare was great to me. And mm-hmm. bef- so when I finished chemo, I, I, I had this job that I no longer could do, but I couldn't afford to lose the insurance because I was going to get this is before Obamacare um, I was going to get denied coverage elsewhere because of, of course cancer, pre-existing condition condition exactly and then in 2014 when Obamacare went into place I finally had options and I was able to go on but but in between those years right. I had to go on COBRA which at the end of COBRA my total payment was I think like $987 a month for insurance right. to stay on my insurance which is a lot shitty insurance $987 a month how much did you end up in debt from in total now from at, well the total now is around 80,000 mm-hmm. um at the time and that's just medical debt that's all medical debt yeah all everything and we talked about how you didn't have 
student loans. I have no student loans. So like you went to the school of cancer. Yep. Honestly, in my opinion, and there's a great, there are uh, Bernie Sanders who's in, who proposed this bill in the Senate about focusing on pharmaceutical companies because big farmers really is where it's at in a lot of ways. Were I mean, you that's... shocked by how much a lot of this stuff was costing? Well, that, that pill or yeah. that shot. The that shot. shot is through big pharma. That shot is through pharmaceutical companies. Who you... can afford, who can charge $14,000 for exactly. it? Exactly. Because they know you'll pay $14,000 for it. Because they know you want to live. Yeah. Yeah. And so like it's, it's pharmaceutical companies that are really going after Americans and yet politicians are making healthcare this partisan sort of political punching bag. Right. And it's not that. It's literally, I can't pay for my medication. I can't pay for my services mm-hmm. because they've gotten to a point now where where they're just too exorbitant for me. Yeah. And yet I'm working. Like, I have a job. Yeah. I am working. I have insurance. Like... And yet I still can't pay these things. And that's right. not because of Obamacare. It's because of pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. I do think of cancer as a blessing in some ways. Like it was a horrible thing to get. And it was a horrible moment in my life. Yeah. Um, but I'm grateful for it because it's given me the perspective and sort of a mind frame that I, I don't think I would have had otherwise. And, and now I have this sort of empathy for anybody who is – persecuted or who's pushed down because of some circumstance in their life and and you were already gay well i was already gay <laughs> but i never felt i mean i always joke there's a there's a show i did a couple of years ago they asked me to do this it gets better fundraiser show yeah. and i told the producer of the show it was never bad for me like it was always basically okay for me it was basically like it gets eh, the same like it was it was just always the same and i told him that he didn't like my set but um <laughs> But so that never really was factored into being gay was never like something that kept me down, you know, and I never felt persecuted because of it. And, and, but I, but I, so cancer, I think helped me empathize with people in a way that I don't think I ever would have. And it, and it caused me to react in a way. It caused me to like get angry about things and it caused me to sort of be very responsive to like, this is wrong and this is why it's wrong. I do think that there should be some sort of like, like a basis of care that every right. American is, is deserves. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And really, care in this country, everything is about preventative care. And now, under Obamacare, 90%, this is the highest rate it's ever been in the U.S. history, 90% of Americans are insured at this moment in mm-hmm. time because of Obamacare. And that's because we've expanded these social programs mm-hmm. to to include sort of poorer Americans into people of lesser means into getting just a doctor's visit. I know. Just going in to get a screening or to get your flu shot. And if we if we focus on that preventative and that, that and you're not, not paying the bills when you get sick. Just as a gay American, I take I take Truvada, which is right. the HIV um pill that that prevents the HIV virus. Prep, yeah. Um and I take that and that's very expensive. I mean like even at my under my insurance, I have to pay I have to pay like 150 for the first bit and then $50 a month after that mm-hmm. for a 30-month dose. That's what I'm saying. I think they feel like, oh, they're going to – like that's another thing where it's like it's a marginalized group, whether it's like low yeah. income or gay or whatever. And they're like, we can charge them out the ass for yeah. this because – Exactly. Because they're like this marginalized group who needs this Yet in thing. the state of California, like, you know, birth control is covered under mm-hmm. is, is under Obamacare. Yeah. and. And gay men, or men who sleep with men, I'll say, because it doesn't isn't exclusively yeah. gay. Men who sleep with men who want to take that extra precaution and have Truvada in their lives. Right. That is 
directly a preventative measure to stop the HIV infection from happening. So how is that not as preventative as birth control? What Republicans are saying about a a free market and a market-based sort of health industry isn't necessarily bad. I do believe that, like, Paul Ryan wants a man to get wealthy off whatever he does for a living, but also he doesn't want people, like, dying. And I don't think anyone wants anybody to die. I and don't know. I Part of me is like, I don't think he cares. I know. I know. And I, I don't think he cares. I, th- I, think I believe he would that just sometimes, be- too. But I think it's like he just doesn't. I think that they just don't see him as people. And, like, I think a story like yours with the shot, like, doesn't occur to them. That's true. But at the same time. And also they're like, well, but, like. If this community is smaller, if this marginalized community is smaller, like that's kind of good, right, guys? But if we're careful in not, and I, this is something that I really do, I, I, I stand, I believe in firmly, is that if we isolate communities by sort of rhetoric that shames other people, yeah, then we're not having a conversation. And I think that's what happened during the 2016 election: is that we had communities of people using rhetoric to to have a discourse that didn't allow anybody to see each other's humanity. And if we accuse, like, if we, if we literally say, like, you're a Nazi, you're this, you're, you're Except race- when they're Nazis. <laughs> yes, but, but like, if, if, if we use, there's more tactile ways of having these conversations and also so that, like, things can just get done. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, things can... But it's also less, like, cartoonishly evil. It is sometimes. And it seems like... yeah. That's what's happening. Yeah. Um, And and I think that's why, like, having conversations like we're having now are very important. And I wish more... Yes, HL. I wish more podcasts (laughs) have them. Next up, let's talk to Akila Hughes. As I mentioned, Akila is a fellow YouTuber, which means she's got a legion of thousands of dedicated fans. And thank God she does, because last year she literally had to ask them to save her life. It's like a kind of long story, but the cliff notes for that are that I had a weird rash after going to the gym. And uh, I thought... That's always something that you want to happen. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, this is God's way of saying don't ever work out. And so it was really horrible and like painful. Um, it was like a full body rash, not like a weird, like, you know, middle of nowhere rash. Um, and uh, the doctor was like, we think you have Lyme disease, so we'll put you on antibiotics. But in the interim, I was having all this very bizarre swelling. And I went to um, like a liver specialist because it was specifically on my like side. And I, if I would roll over in the night, it would just, you know, sort of hit and feel bad. Um and they did like a CAT scan and like, you have giant benign liver tumors, which is a term they use. I didn't just call them giant, but they're like, once they're bigger than 11 centimeters, they're considered giant, which is a cool distinction. Um, but I had two of them. And so one was about the size of a grapefruit. Uh, the other was like the size of a golf ball. And I had to get them removed. How old were you when this was happening? Uh, this was last year. So I was, I guess I was 26. <laughs> and... Did you have any idea that it was going to be such a huge thing? Did your liver feel bad? Like, Yeah. I mean, I was having a lot of bizarre symptoms all at once. And so I was actually kind of relieved that it was just benign liver tumors because I was having tests for like leukemia and like way more serious stuff. But once they told me it was like an organ problem, that's when I realized it obviously was, um, wasn't going to be something they could just treat with medication. 
What was your job situation when this happened? So I was freelancing then, um, and I was auditioning for a lot of shows, and I was writing my own show. And then also, like, you know, I make YouTube videos every week. So I was making all of my money from working for either other people or myself, but, you know, on a not necessarily consistent basis. And what was your insurance? It was, I mean, it was its own nightmare. I had signed up for Obamacare, which I was excited about, but there was some problem with the system. Uh, and I got like kicked off of it. Like, I, I never got a card in the mail. And so when I went to the doctor the first time, I'm like, I have insurance. They said that I didn't. Um, and because there was some problem with it, I ended up getting placed on Medicare and just refunded the first three months. So then I was just on Medicare, which is, I mean, I feel bad for like the elderly and like, you know, like impoverished people in our country because Medicare is just a nightmare. How so? Like, I mean, there are very few specialists that will cover you. So I was paying all of that just out of pocket. You know, even seeing the doctors that you would be used to seeing, that's just not the case. So I had many instances where I was going, you know, I live in Brooklyn, like sort of near uh, Williamsburg, and I was going all the way to Coney Island to like sit in an office from 9 a.m. till like 7 p.m. because you just had to come and wait for a doctor to be available. It was like a nightmare. So, okay, great. Um, <laughs> all good news. So, yeah, this is great. Um, so until you were better, were you thinking about, like, how am I going to pay for this? Or was that just sort of on the back burner? I mean, it was, like, the only thing I could think about. It caused a lot of stress in my life. Um, for the first month and a half, because I thought that my insurance would get figured out, I was like, cool, I'll just pay all of this in advance, and then I'll get reimbursed. Um, I didn't get reimbursed. <laughs> and they, 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 you know, just basically decided they're not going to figure it out. So I had sunk like $5,000 into specialist visits and like CAT scans and MRIs and like all of these things that I needed to have done. Like, I mean, every blood test without insurance costs like $400. And so I was spending a ton of money trying to figure it out on my own thinking that, like, okay, well, once I have insurance, I'll get that money back and it'll be covered under, like, copays and stuff. And it just wasn't. So I immediately, you know, I, like, called my mom crying and I'm like, I have to move home because you know, I don't come from money. I'm from Kentucky. <laughs> um, I, like, didn't know anybody when I moved to New York. And asking my parents for money has just never been an option. And so I was like, you know, I think I have to move home. And she's like, you can't do that. Things are really happening for your career right now. Like, so I, my compromise was just making a GoFundMe. Um, yeah, so that's what I want to talk about. So there's been a lot of articles about people crowdfunding their health care. <laughs> it's um, the so saddest can, thing in the world. It's so sad and it's so dystopian. So can you explain uh, what led you to do that and what the steps were to do that and what you were asking to get funded? Yeah, for sure. Um, so basically I I was aware of other people's GoFundMes from like – Facebook from either, you know, a family member died, we can't afford the funeral to like, I have to have the surgery, whatever. Um, and so I just was researching them for a few days. And I'm, I realized that it was possible to get a decent amount of money for medical bills. And so I, you know, I ended up writing a really long essay with pictures from like my Twitter account, because I've been like live tweeting my rash and like going to the doctor. And I'm like, here's like the blow by blow of how we got to now. And I was just like, you know, if anybody can even just share this. After you first posted the campaign, were you just sitting there staring at the computer being like, oh, my God, what if no one actually likes me? Oh, that was the worst. I It's so funny. I saw this short film that was about a guy who, like, 
posted a video about how he was going to commit suicide, but he didn't do it. And he like posted it on accident and like no one commented, like no one cared. Um, and I sort of felt like that was what would happen. Like people would be like, OK, well, then die. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh. So I was literally I think I posted it like two in the morning. It was a very like desperate late night, like, well, like crying on my couch waiting. And it's like, it's weird feeling like your life, your literal life is in the balance of people who are just like happen to be up at 2 a.m. on Facebook. My initial goal, I think, was $10,000, which would have just like covered maybe the next month <laughs> of bills. Um, but people kept giving. And so I ended up raising it eventually to 40000 But it sort of dawned on me then, like the fact that I have an audience online made it more likely that I would survive a surgery. Like... I was going to say that. Yeah. So like you having because a lot of this talk is about like popularity and how being popular decides who lives or dies. Yes. And you're you are like, for lack of a better word, like a popular person. Yeah. So you were able to live because fans wanted you to live. Right. And like to me, that's shocking. I mean, I feel like there's endless articles and essays that need to be written about this topic because, you know, I feel like I had a lot of, you know, raw feelings about the fact that I even had to do it in the first place. Like, I think I should live in a country that supports me when I'm supporting it. Um, but, you know, I I think it just was really amazing to me that I had to ask and that people were willing to give. But the fact that, like, there are people who will die because they don't know enough people. Yeah, or they don't know, um, they don't know how to use crowdfunding. Right. Or they don't, like, crowdfunding was made for uh, for uh, for making art and so like the idea that we're creatives we know about crowdfunding but a lot of people like don't and then to have to make like an essay with pictures and make it sort of popular (laughs) and like make it easy to read it's just like as a plea for your life is so crazy yeah unbelievable I mean it's it was definitely a turning point in the way I saw everything I was doing with my career um, and sort of how vital I saw the things that I was doing online to be just because of the specific circumstances. Like there was a good chance that like I wouldn't have gotten surgery in time from a doctor because I was young and to not be able to afford to see other doctors for those consultations or surgeons for those consultations that I could have just died waiting. Um, and I'm sure that there are people who do every day and we just don't get to hear about it because like they, they're not on the Internet the way that I am. They're not good at marketing, branding right. themselves. Yeah. So what did that money go towards? Like the money went towards um, it, the surgery and stuff. And then do you have any debt left over? Yeah. I mean, there's still totally debt that I'm paying off. The good thing is you can't like um, like they can't, you know, repossess your property <laughs> for for medical bills. So it's just sort of like I'm paying when I can what I can. But um Yeah, I mean, the surgery was incredibly expensive, even with Medicare, which is like something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that it, you know, for a lot of people will cover all of your surgery, but this is considered catastrophic emergency surgery. And so, you know, it it covered maybe 20,000 of it, but then there was another 60,000 and then there's a recovery in the hospital for five days. And then all of the follow-up appointments and CAT scans and, you know, every doctor. Wait, I'm sorry. If it's if it's catastrophic emergency surgery, it doesn't cover it? No. I mean, like, it covers up to a certain amount. Uh, it, like, basically, it paid for all of the appointments leading up to the surgery and all of the transportation for those because, like, I was so ill at a certain point that I wasn't taking the train. Like, I didn't even want to take a car, but I had to. Um, and I, I couldn't work at all. Like, 
there were days when I would just pass out, like from standing up in my kitchen for five minutes. So, um, yeah, it got pretty bleak. So was there any blowback on you crowdfunding? Like, were there people who were like, no, you should just get a job and fix this and do this yourself. And you're like a welfare. Per- I, don't know, <laughs> I mean, say. I feel like like I think my mom was immediately reluctant. Um, and I think part of it was like she felt ashamed that she couldn't pay for it. And she was like, well, why are you asking other people? I'm like, because I'm not trying to die. Like, I'm sorry. That- and also, like, the shame, like, the isolated shame of being like, I should be able to pay for this when it's, like, clearly a systemic issue, I think, is such a big part of this podcast, too. Yeah. I mean, I felt that way. I didn't push the, you know, the GoFundMe for a month and a half because I'm like, part of it is just the pride of being like, I am a self-employed person and people know that I don't have to work a job. Um, even though I'm working, you know, more hours than I would if I had a job, it's kind of shameful to have to ask for money in this situation because they already think that I'm so, you know, spoiled by not having to go to a nine to five. And they also assume that I make more money and that, you know, maybe they'd have a different opinion of me if they thought that I wasn't making money. But I don't know that there are many people in the world who even have money who are willing to spend, you know, $20,000 over the course of two months just to go to the doctor. But, you know, those sorts of rational thoughts don't enter your mind. All you think is like, this is shameful. And even if you have a job, that's not a $20,000 you were allotting to that. You didn't expect (laughs) to spend that $20,000 doing that. Right. Exactly. And so, um, you know, even especially when I started raising the goal because we started surpassing it, there were some people who were like, well, why do you need more money now? And I'm like, oh, well. I always needed more money. I felt bad asking. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like this was ever going to cost $10,000 and I was going to, like, peace out. Like, there are, I I think wisdom teeth surgery is maybe $10,000, you know, like, without insurance. Um, So there's definitely an element of people who think that it's entitled to get anything from anyone else ever. These are also people who, like, pride themselves on being Bible thumpers, but I guess forgot all of Jesus's shit, but, you know, whatever. But it's like, it's like, entitled to want to live like we're just raising the bar on what's entitled like I really am scared that like in the future it's gonna be like oh you want to eat lunch you're so entitled I mean that's like, like now. we're just raising the bar yeah, I mean they, they're doing that for children who have free lunch now because their parents you know can't afford for them to have food there oh, are homeless supposed kids to give you free lunch yeah, now like, you're supposed to you're eat s- <laughs> you're so entitled I mean look like, at that word doesn't even mean anything anymore right but I mean even look at Flint Michigan like oh you think you need clean water like <laughs> yeah you think you deserve clean water like the the line between like basic right and yeah. and privilege is so it doesn't exist anymore it's so weird yeah there are probably at least thousands of people right now who are sitting on GoFundMe like, certainly hope I can get this transplant, certainly hope I can get this surgery, hope that I can get this treatment, or I'm going to die. Like, hope people are empathetic enough because my government's not. Like, that's that's the reality of this country. How do you think about your relationship to the people who donated to your liver surgery now? I mean, I personally feel like endlessly indebted, which is not a great feeling. Um and I think that, I mean, they they deserve that. You know, it's really nice that they were willing to give any amount of money or share on, on the Internet. But I do feel like there's not a, a way to repay them aside from just shouting it out as much as possible. That Like, I was so thankful and so grateful and continue to put out content on the Internet and hope that they like it. And there is just sort of a weird feeling like with... You know, when we talk about crowdfunding and people are using it for art, they can send you like a CD in the mail. But like, what am I going to send them? Like, here's a picture of my tumor. Thanks so much. <laughs> like, I don't have anything to give them aside from the fact that I'm still alive. And I, I hope that that's enough. But I, I did feel guilty for a really long time. And there are times when I still do where, 
You know, I think about people who have GoFundMes up now who are sick and like I'm happy to share them. But sometimes, you know, I like if I've just spent four hundred dollars trying to do like other people's GoFundMes, then I'm like, shit, I don't have money for this one right now. Um, and that it feels guilty, you know, like I feel like I should have to pay for everybody's GoFundMe for the rest of my life and I don't have that money. So it's just this weird cycle of this guilt. Yeah, I mean, there is like an entitlement, right? Because they paid to keep you alive. So now it's like, better be posting videos, Akilah. <laughs> exactly. I paid I'm sure for you've heard that. Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime that I've taken a break, they're like, well, where are you? I mean, you're healthy now. And I'm like, damn. <laughs> yeah. I can't even take a break. Like now I just like am owed. It's like that, uh, that scene or this, the hypothetical scene in Space Jam where, you know, Michael Jordan would just have to lose <laughs> basketball for the rest of his yeah. life in space. Like, that's how I feel about it. I'm like, I, I'm trying, guys. <laughs> I'm trying to win. Yeah, you better, like, you better succeed and you better not get hit by a bus because we fucking paid for you. Yeah, and I also feel like I can never get sick again. Like, every time I go to a doctor and there's even ambiguous news, I'm like, I can't ask again. Like, there's no way they would pay again to save my life, so I guess I'm just going to die next time. So now let's meet Cleo Chang. Cleo wrote a piece for Jacobin Magazine recently called Ending the Empathy Gap. And this conversation is particularly important for us to have this week. Because in the aftermath of Trump care never even making it to the House floor for a vote, it can be tempting to celebrate and to feel like we've somehow triumphed over the people in government who don't believe health care is a human right. Cleo's here to remind us that the real debate has only just begun. You know, the first issue is that how we talk about government benefits in general, and this is not just about health care, but, um, you know, about education and welfare and uh, food and um, including health care, of course, is just often inadequate. Um, I mean, you see people talk about these things as a privilege rather than uh, as a right, as you said, when it really should just be that, you know, people deserve to be healthy and people deserve to be fed um, and not live in poverty simply because that they are you know, human beings born to this world rather than because they did something especially good or they voted in the right way or, um, you know, they're hardworking. Uh, uh, those are reasons why we often argue to take these benefits away from people. But really, everyone deserves them just sort of as a human right. And I think that the conversation often skews away from this. But a lot of it does feel like, oh, maybe I maybe this is karma or maybe I did something or maybe mm -hmm. like it's this very weird sort of moralistic thing around like injury or illness. Yeah. And then we we fall into that, too. Right. Like who deserves health care versus who doesn't like, oh, you in your article, you talk about like many leading liberal voices were sort of like, well, Trump voters have reaped what they've sown and maybe they'll lose coverage and they'll understand why their vote was misguided. Yeah. You know, we saw a lot of that rhetoric coming not from conservatives, but from liberals after the election, where people were like, okay, well, you voted for Trump. And there's these Trump voters uh, uh, in you know the Washington Post, New York Times, who are talking about how they're um, now scared that they're going to lose their health care. You know, Trump promised, you know, everyone's going to be covered. And they realize that maybe he might not live up to these promises. Um, and a common response among uh, some liberals was that, you know, they deserve to lose their health care because that's what they voted for, which just is the, a totally backwards way of thinking of it, I think. In your piece, you talk about personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, so can we uh, talk a little bit about the role that 
personal responsibility, quote unquote, plays in the way we think about healthcare in this country? Sure. I mean, I think it's uh, like I said, it's not just with healthcare. I mean, we we are definitely seeing with healthcare, but it's true with almost everything. In the '70s, you had Ronald Reagan, um, you know, talking about the welfare queen, uh, this this dog whistle towards black women who were apparently, you know. Um, super lazy and 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 uh, living off of welfare checks, um, and then then during the Bill Clinton 1996 Welfare Reform uh, Act was actually called the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act. Um, so you know both on the left and the right, there's been this thing about uh, stigmatizing poor people um, and minorities for getting government benefits um, and blaming it on their personal failings rather than say uh, systemic failings in our economy or in our country. Almost everyone in our country agrees that every kid deserves to have a public education, and that's a government benefit that uh, you know wasn't always it wasn't always that way, right? But now it's sort of so entrenched in our system that um, I mean, obviously there are dangers. Right, and you would never have people go, "Oh, you think you deserve to go to public right. school?" Right, and <laughs> I mean, it's also easier because people can feel empathetic for kids a lot easier than they can for others because of the same so the same reasons. Um, you know, they don't put as much personal responsibility on children as we do as adults um, for obvious reasons. But yeah, but kids still get sick. Yeah, like, it's exactly. Just so weird. Yeah, obviously we have Betsy DeVos in the uh, cabinet, um, but the fact that her confirmation was what one of the closest confirmations in the history of the Senate with the Mike Pence Mm -hmm. tiebreaker VP I think like that's a huge testament to how uh, popular public education is. So how can we get people to see healthcare in the same way? I think people are starting to I mean if you see the polling people want affordable healthcare and now you have uh, governors and representatives on the Republican side you know defending Medicaid expansions um, in their states so you know we're definitely moving that direction. People often are like, well, I don't want to pay for stuff that doesn't have to do with me. But you do all the time. Yeah. That's called living in a country. Right, right. I mean, like, uh, the class example is the um, no one pays for the fireman, right? Like, our taxes yeah. go to <laughs> subsidize, like, so that if there is, if it happens to be a fire somewhere, you know, you want the, the fireman to come to your house and put it out. Or they're like, you're an old man. Like, I'm an old man. I shouldn't have to pay for people's maternity. And it's like, okay, right. but like. Your mom gave birth to you. Like, everyone has a mom. Like, yeah. I don't, like you have to. That's part of living in a society. Yeah. So my, my question that I always want to ask uh, people who say that is if they know where babies come from. Because maybe they don't. Maybe they don't all know <laughs> that they came from their mom. That's the whole thing that people say with um, EBT where it's like, well, mm-hmm. we, gave, we gave you these food stamps. So now mm-hmm. we have to know what you're buying with them. And it's like, no, you don't. Right. <laughs> and then there's also the... Uh, push to drug test food stamp recipients, which is just like, you know, first of all, that's that's really expensive to do. Um, so mm-hmm. you're wasting money that way. And then the drug tests almost always show up uh, negative. And then also, you don't ask so, other people who are benefiting from government benefits to get drug tested, you know. I feel like that's just like racist and classist. Yeah. Like they must be on <laughs> drugs. Like that's yeah. the only explanation. Yeah. Do you know how many rich people I've seen do cocaine? All right. So... <laughs> Even if you were a piece of shit your whole life, you still deserve the same cancer treatment as the yeah, good person, right? Totally. And, like, maybe you're a piece of shit for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> life sucks. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know, you don't have to like someone to think that they deserve benefits. 
Right. I think. Exactly. And that's the whole thing. That's mm-hmm. even on the Republican side. You don't have to like that I sleep around, but you do have to pay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I just want to go back to something that Eric Ashley said that we didn't include in the actual interview. But um, on top of all the medical bills and debt, I asked him when he had time to mourn for his wife or did he have time to mourn for his wife? Um, And this is what he said. I didn't have much time to mourn at all. Um, You know, I I basically mourned in the car on the way to work every day. (laughs) You know, turn on some music, uh, get my head straight and... uh, born a little bit, you know. Unfortunately, back then, a, a man taking a couple weeks off work because he's concerned about his children's welfare and, you know, that they might need him didn't go over well. I was, I remember the company I was working for at the time, I, I had taken a couple, like three days off after the funeral, and I came into the office, and I heard talking in the front office, and I heard the owner of the company say, When's Eric coming back? I think it's been long enough. It's insane that we have to think that way in the United States. Thank you for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who own boats because they're vulture capitalist healthcare executives and then punch holes in the holes of their boats. We're not advocating that, but are we? But aren't we? But are we? We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production. And Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. And our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week. <laughs>